Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We hope you guys had an excellent holiday break. This is Allie. And this is Jason. So Allie, did you have a good break? We had a nice time off from a recording. So let's travel. What did you do uh, while we were gone? Hung out with family and friends. We went to the Denver Botanic Gardens and saw the light show. We spent time outside. I did a bunch of Pure Bar <laughs> and erased that quickly with eating a lot of food. What about you? So my girlfriend and I went and visited her family in Decatur, Illinois. So the, we, there was actually a lot more to do in central Illinois than you would expect. So we did some rock climbing. We, oh, so her stepdad works at the Caterpillar plant there. So I took a tour of the Caterpillar plant where they make large mining equipment. Cool. And the memory that I'll last the most is we, to get to Decatur, you take a single engine Cessna to their one runway airport. Uh, I had never flown on a plane that small, and as someone who used to have a significant fear of flying, it was an interesting experience. Uh, actually, the planes are quite nice inside. It's much more luxurious than a uh, flying commercial, but uh, hmm. a little different. But yeah, we also ate a lot, had a great time with our family. All right, well, to start off this week, we have a question from a pre-med student. And for this question, we actually spoke to one of our vascular attendings, Dr. Oma Jaziri, who has a unique perspective. So let's listen to his interview now. So this week on the podcast, we have a question from one of our listeners. Amanda is a senior undergraduate student at CSU in nearby Fort Collins, and she asks us um, our thoughts about Caribbean medical schools and what that does in terms of your ability to match at a U.S. general surgery program. And so we have Dr. Jaziri with us. We came to him with this question because we know that Dr. Jaziri graduated from a Caribbean medical school and then has had great success, was a general surgery resident at Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, and then went on and did vascular surgical training at UCLA Harbor and is an excellent faculty mentor to us. So we wanted to ask you, Dr. Jaziri, about your path and what you thought about this question from one of our listeners. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I think this is a very good question, and it's a very common question that is asked at all times. And uh, it's a question that was even asked when I was uh, looking into going to medical school and, and programs. And I had an academic advisor at the University of Virginia, and uh, that, that gentleman gave me very sage advice at a point where I was personally waitlisted at three different universities, and I had an acceptance to St. George's in Grenada. And his one statement to me was, do you really want to be a doctor? And I said, yes. And then he said, well, I don't really see what the problem is here. You have an opportunity to do what you want to do. So take it. And uh, it was the best advice he ever gave me. And uh, and I did. And for, for me, it was a great experience. There's a lot of... Uh, angst and uh, and concern about uh, going overseas uh, for medical education. I think that stigma has changed over time, just like the stigma about being a DO and an MD, and, and that has really changed over time. I think the problems or the issues that these schools used to have in the past, and I can only speak to my own institution, are problems of the past and just that. And if you are a uh, strong individual and if you 
want to really achieve a goal, I think the these these institutions do offer you that that avenue specifically if you look at St. George's and I and I don't want to specifically advertise that's not my point uh, there was a recent study and that looked at where current active and licensed physicians in the US graduated from medical school and surprisingly Number one, I believe, was Indiana University, if I'm not mistaken. And, and number four was actually St. George's. Wow. So for, for, uh, for that particular institution, I think um, the individuals coming out of that particular institution have had great success. I did uh, about 14 months uh, abroad, and the rest of my training was done essentially in New York and working with residents from U.S. medical schools, working with med students from U.S. medical schools. And I won't say that it was all rosy along the way. There were certainly people who looked at uh, my credentials and and may have uh, frowned or may have uh, looked at it differently. But I can tell you at this point in my career, I don't think it ever even comes up. What comes up is my research, what comes up is how well our residents and fellows are doing. What comes up is how our fellowship is doing. And probably the last thing that ever gets um, addressed is where I went to medical school. So when you were applying specifically for residency, do you feel like the quantity of interviews that you received or the quality of interviews that you received were any different from your peers from American medical schools? So I started my general surgery residency in 2003, and I'm dating myself slightly. So uh, my memory is as good as that point. And I think there was definitely programs that I was interested in that I didn't get an interview at. But I also think that some of that may have been my scores and my... uh, my application and not specifically related to my medical school. My board scores were not 99th percentile. And, uh, you know, I did well in medical school. I wouldn't say I did horribly, but but I don't feel specifically that anyone singled me out uh, because I was from a Caribbean school. Uh, and part of it is that, again, the school that I went to, at least in the Northeast, where I was the where was the majority of programs that I applied to had had experience with our students had had seen the quality and had seen our USMLE scores and things like that so to those particular institutions it was not a an issue in my mind I think that to sum up your answer that it is not something that will hinder you to a point of not being admitted to U.S. surgical residency, that the most important things are you being a successful medical student, doing well on your boards, and truly having like the passion and desire to be whatever type of physician you choose. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would just add one thing uh, that was my advice to all all of uh, medical students who are applying for residencies is uh, to do some soul searching and really look at what your own goals are for the future as as it relates to 
academic medicine or private practice or working with industry, and then look at the different training programs that you're applying to and see if those programs have the tools to get you to where you want to be in 10 years. I know it's that very cliche question of where do you see yourself 10 years from now, but if you take some time and do the soul searching for yourself and where you see yourself 10 years from now, then I think you can work backwards and uh, look at institutions that will help you become successful in what you want to do. Well, thank you, Dr. Jaziri, for your input, and thank you, Amanda, for your excellent question. And remember, guys, if you have any additional questions that you'd like to ask us, please send them in to rmspodcast at outlook.com. And again, we thank Amanda for her question for us. Next, for our main topic of conversation today, what you guys have all been waiting for, we'll be talking about the resident experience at Denver Health. So Denver Health is your prototypical county hospital. Uh, It serves as the regional center of trauma and emergency care and actually houses the city of Denver's paramedic system or its largest paramedic system, which is somewhat unique for a city of Denver's size. It's also a significant transfer referral center for traumas around the state. So not only do you see patients who arrive by ambulance, but we get people from all over the Rocky Mountains uh, flown by aircraft. Uh, So you see a large variety of injuries. And in addition to that, it's obviously a lifeline for the population of Denver who have limited access to healthcare, and we won't go into the details of that, but certainly you see some advanced pathology that you wouldn't otherwise encounter as a resident. Allie, do you have any memories that stick out, or do you want to talk about what the general experience is at Denver Health as a resident? Sure. So I, obviously I can only speak, and probably you as well, to the first two years of residency. Um, you spend a varying amount of time at Denver Health throughout the course of your residency here As an intern, I only spent one month at Denver Health, and I was on a general surgery service where we did trauma. Every service has trauma as part of its clinical breadth. So every service takes trauma call, but then there are also kind of different elective flavors associated with each service as well. And so I was on the purple service that included, like I said, trauma, but also some bariatric surgery, some thoracic surgery, and some true bread and butter general surgery as well. So it was busy. (laughs) When I was an intern, we still had paper charts. That's all gone by the wayside, and they have Epic now. So that was something that was interesting for me because we had always had, at every place that I worked at as a medical student, um, electronic medical records. But anyway, there's now an EMR at Denver Health too. But I thought it was just really nice because you do – see such a wide variety of pathology on a day-to-day basis. Like you're like in one room in a polytrauma patient's room, and then you go see your gastric bypass, and then you go see even a vascular patient or, you know, somebody who had an incarcerated hernia, like the emergency, emergency general surgery cases. So that was something that I definitely appreciated about being there as an intern. And then second year, it's I was also on general surgery services my second year as well, but most of it was uh, dealing with traumas and surgical trauma ICU care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had a little bit different experience from a lot of our classmates, I think. So I actually spent, as a second year, eight weeks on the dedicated trauma. Well, the way I should put it is we have two residents, a chief and a mid-level resident, who are on a quote-unquote trauma team, but they actually admit to uh, the three services in the hospital. So what that means is you're seeing patients as they come in through the emergency department or, uh, well, yeah, it would be primarily the emergency department, either as a trauma or as an acute care surgery case. 
do it either than operate them, operate on them or admit them to a team. And I did eight weeks of that instead of being on one of the general surgery services. The interesting thing about Denver Health is it's very much of a next man up mentality because it is a major trauma center. And so you can't really control how the residents are allocated based off of what is going on within the hospital. So you could have the acute care surgery cases lined up and suddenly you have a multiple trauma incident come in. And that means that the team and the faculty rely on you, regardless of your level of training, uh, to step up and be ready for those cases. And so there are several times where I found myself as a second year resident, really to a degree running the show in the emergency department in the trauma bay, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredibly unique experience and one I'm very grateful for to have early on. It makes you appreciate all of the reading you're doing mm-hmm. from the very beginning uh, because you don't know when suddenly you'll be at the bedside with the attending doing a trauma hepatectomy. The, the memory that stands out the most is uh, the few times where you're in the trauma bay uh, and the team's somewhat dispersed because there are several trauma incidents and suddenly the entire room is looking to you leading kind of the trauma workup and the care of this patient and it happens very rapidly and you kind of have to think on your feet to a degree. It's a big reason why I'm now interested in trauma, but Denver Health is an incredible, incredibly important part of our training. I think we all feel that way. And uh, just recently, there was a horrible story in the news here where there was multiple officers who were shot. And those patients all initially presented to, I think it's a level three center, they went to Littleton Adventist. And so everyone needs a good trauma background as a general surgeon, because you never know when you'll be the one who's uh, treating these people who come in on New Year's Day, very early in the morning, Mm -hmm. and you're it. And yeah, there'll be opportunities to transfer those patients to a a referral center, but first you need to stabilize the patient. So these experiences are incredibly important. With that said, we have several interviews for you guys today. We spoke to several of our trauma attendings over at Denver Health. Each of them has a unique background, a unique experience. First up, we have my research mentor, Dr. Ernest Moore, who is a longtime trauma surgeon at Denver Health. He also has had an incredibly successful research career. He's published over, I've, I've been quoted a thousand manuscripts in his career. He's had several large, long-standing grants. Very interesting person to talk to. So let's listen to him now. Dr. Ernest Moore. He's previously the chief of trauma at Denver General Hospital uh, for 36 years and chief of surgery here for 28 years. He's also a distinguished professor of surgery at the University of Colorado Denver and since 2012 has been the editor of the journal Trauma and Acute Care Surgery as well as one of our trauma attendings at Denver Health. I could spend most of our time detailing all of your incredible achievements and high-ranking positions in the academic surgical sphere but let's just get to it. So, Dr. Moore, uh, we ask everyone this, but what was your path to surgery and to Denver Health? Well, my path to surgery was uh, principally through an uncle who was a cardiac surgeon, uh, trained at uh, Johns Hopkins and established the uh, cardiac program at UCLA. So I thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon for uh, most of my life until I started residency at the University of Vermont, and then I... uh, encountered the chairman, John Davis, who is a prototype of uh, Hawkeye. So that's why I'm here. So when someone's considering a general surgery training, when it comes to location or type of program, all programs are going to have a little bit of different flavor. And one thing that is unique to programs across the country is maybe only a handful have a true county hospital trauma experience. How does a, a strong trauma experience benefit the trainee who doesn't necessarily intend to seek a career in trauma surgery? 
Well, I think the primary advantage of a so-called county hospital located trauma center is that we can really train general surgeons in the traditional fashion. Uh, we're not uh, overburdened by fellowships that uh, compete for uh, thoracic and vascular cases. Uh, and in fact, we are able to practice a broad range of uh, general surgery, endocrine, thoracic, vascular, elective, as uh, well as abdominal surgery. And so I think the trauma center per se uh, largely is a pathway to allow us to continue to maintain broad-based general surgery training. Now, there have been and continue to be changes in surgical training. What are some of the consequential changes in general surgery training that you've recognized over the years? And what are some recommendations you have for residents who want to obtain the most out of their training? Well, there have been a lot of changes. Uh, I think the most noteworthy, of course, is a so-called 80-hour work week. Uh, it seems like we're beginning to understand that better and beginning to make some compromises that allow us to train within that uh, period. And as I always say, the trainees, you know, you get out of a profession what you put into it. And I think one of the gratifying parts of my profession, and I would think virtually every surgeon, is uh, the gratification you get from managing a critically injured or critically ill patient uh, and the long-term family appreciation for what you've done. But the family doesn't recognize you uh, as that integral to success without you really being there 24-7. And I don't think we have to get ridiculous uh, to the point of compromising our entire lives, but I think unlike our colleagues in other disciplines, we don't have a schedule we can predict. There are times that we are willing to work 36 hours in a row, uh, and if we do, then we ought to take 36 hours off uh, and go play. And I think that's largely what surgeons are going to have to do the rest of their lives. We can't evade uh, the long and hard hours, uh, but we certainly need to recognize that we need to debrief. And I think if we put in these arduous hours, then we need to take off uh, hours and spend time with our family and friends and uh, and uh, get ourselves back to a stress level that's not uh, damaging in the long term. So one of the benefits I've heard mentioned to me about some of the changes in the uh, work-life balance is you have more time to dedicate towards basic science research as a surgeon. Now, that's not always true. It depends on somewhat what kind of practice you're in. Uh, but certainly you've been involved with basic science research for a very long time now. As for someone who's had one of the most productive academic careers of, of any surgeon in the country, and are in many ways a role model for how to achieve success for basic science uh, research as an academic surgeon. What is the importance in completing research during general surgical training? And can you describe the various ways residents can partake in academic contributions throughout the residency? Well, I'm not sure I'd advertise myself as a model, uh, <laughs> but I have had an enjoyable career. And frankly, I think today, more than ever, it's important to uh, take time out during your surgical training to get so-called basic science education. And that doesn't mean you have to go chase rats the rest of your life, but I think uh, developing the approach to a problem and dissecting it into various compartments and controlling those compartments is a different way to look at how we approach a problem uh, at the bedside. I think uh, while 
electrical communication and access to virtually every piece of data in the world has been wonderful. I think, uh, to me anyway, a conspicuous downside to that is that uh, residents and fellows are used to looking at their iPhone for a quick answer. And sure, they can come up with the answer, but they rarely uh, take the time out to think about the mechanism. And I can give you repeated examples of this. Uh, but the fact is, uh, I think taking that time during your general surgery to learn the so-called scientific method will ultimately make you a better surgeon no matter what you uh, pursue uh, as a career. Dr. Moore, I'm just going to expound on that statement just a bit. So I would recommend for those who are interested in developing some of their basic science research, and as you mentioned, having a better understanding of the mechanisms that are involved with the various physiological processes that we encounter as residents. Uh, there's no better way than getting involved with writing a review paper. Uh, you will take a deeper dive than you've ever or will ever take uh, regarding a particular process. So for those who are very interested in a topic, review paper writing is a great way to be involved with that. Yeah, I, I would uh, underscore that. Uh, and in fact, uh, my career uh, was begun with uh, being tasked with review articles. The nice thing about a review article is that once you do the spade work, and it's they're tough to do. There's a lot of reading, uh, a lot of searching. But once you do that, put all the pieces together, suddenly you become the local expert. And unfortunately, Jason has been uh, asked to do these, but I think now he understands the value of them. And in fact, uh, he just, for example, did a review on DIC and sepsis, and I can assure you on rounds, he knows more about the coagulation problems associated with sepsis in anyone in the room. And that's good, uh, not only for your ongoing training, but also uh, as you exit, uh, you become an expert in areas and continue those interests throughout your career. Yeah, it's nice being able to start statements with, well, it's very complicated, but uh, people tend to enjoy that process <laughs> or that statement. So moving on, though, so Denver Health, as we mentioned, is very much your traditional publicly funded county hospital that provides a safety net for the Den Denver metro population. What are some of the advantages and or challenges of training at such a place or working at a center such as Denver Health? Well, I'll start out with the advantages. Uh, to me, uh, one of the distinct advantages is you are actually given autonomy in patient care. And that's not absolute autonomy, but certainly much uh, different than at the uh, so-called uh, quaternary university centers where there are uh, endless number of fellows and the attendings have to give eyeball-to-eyeball uh, uh, -eyeball contact with all their patients uh, to appease their referral base. Uh, and at the so-called county hospital, as you, I'm sure, recognize, it's a different uh, relationship you have with patients. And in fact, you have the opportunity really to establish uh, that doctor-to-patient relationship here long before you finish training, whereas at the uh, centers that have uh, all the so-called experts and all the fellows – you don't really have the opportunity to uh, engage in that kind of relationship with patients. Now, the downside, and I don't care what anyone says, the downside is uh, there's no question that safety net hospitals don't have the depth of resources they do at the uh, university facilities. We, for example, today had to 
send someone up for uh, ERCP to, to decompress a biliary leak from a gunshot to liver because the GI individual that does them here was on vacation. Uh, those things are very frustrating, I think, for all of us. And you can pick out a number of areas in which we don't have what we would consider optimal diagnostic or management uh, capabilities. Uh, but by and large, we uh, provide the optimal care through using uh, our uh, colleagues at the university. So I'm going to ask you to look into your glass ball briefly, but what do you see as the future for these type of county hospitals? Well, I keep saying to everyone that uh, if we want to solve the healthcare crisis in the United States, we need to go back to the public health system. And if I was going to predict, uh, I would say within 10 years, uh, we're going to recognize that's the only way we're going to survive. The exorbitant cost and the expenses of the cares we're providing today just can't continue. We just, as a society, cannot absorb those kind of costs. And again, that doesn't mean that the Safety Not Hospital provides inferior care. It just means we give the same quality care, in my estimation, at a lower cost. And uh, I think at some point, although I'm a card-carrying Republican, Mm -hmm. uh, I think at some point we're going to have to have a universal uh, payer system for the public uh, like, like most developed countries do. Uh, I don't think how I don't understand how we have avoided that, but I would predict in the future that, if anything, the safety net hospitals are going to be more integral to patient care than less. Dr. Moore, I'll make sure my parents, who are card carrying Republicans themselves, listen to this episode <laughs> after many discussions when Bom- Obamacare is going through. Uh, but certainly, we digress. One, one of the benefits that we have here in Colorado is the plethora of outdoor activities, and as a resident. Uh, I found that you tend to be looking outside at the mountains more so than enjoying them. However, you, despite having an incredible career uh, in academics, as well as obviously having a very challenging and time-consuming job, uh, have had or have been uh, quite the adventure. And uh, I recently found out that you once completed the Leadville 100, which for those who aren't familiar, is a 100-mile race in which you run 100 miles. And I also believe you've completed a full-length Ironman So how does one find the time both to nurture a a strong academic career as well as maintain the hours required for trauma surgery but still maintain the fitness or even find the time to be involved in those kind of activities? And I am asking for myself partly as well as our listeners because I'm truly curious. Well, I offer a very biased view on this. uh, And I I learned this from my uh, grandfather who was a Harvard-trained judge. And he said, uh, you can never use your mind optimally until you are physically fit. And you talk about decompression. Uh, Many people talk now today about meditation as being therapy to de-stress, which I'm sure that many of them uh, will be able to accomplish. But I can guarantee you, uh, going out on a 10-mile run with your dog, which I do four times a week, uh, is incredibly stress-reducing, and in fact, if anything, most of the original ideas I've ever come up with, not that they're that original, but most of the ideas I've come up, and certainly in responding to hostile emails, have come about on uh, my runs with a dog. Uh, so I think, again, this idea of a balanced life, uh, there's no question in my mind 
that uh, physical conditioning is part of that balanced life. And I would uh, promise you uh, that things would be a lot more peaceful at home. Uh, my wife, to whom I've been married now uh, happily for 40 years, well, most of the time happily, uh, <laughs> totally uh, embraces my uh, periodic runs and uh, will tell people uh, repeatedly that I'm a different individual when I get exercise when, than when I don't. <laughs> I'll second that statement as well. I noticed that once you get that weekend run after a long week at work, uh, especially when you're up in the trails in Colorado, it's really a great way to hit the reset button. So uh, lastly, so to those considering a, a career in trauma, such as myself, or even a career in academic medicine in general, what advice do you have for them and how to be successful and to continue down that path? Well, I think you need to do whatever uh, makes you happy. And not everyone's made out to be an academic surgeon, and not everyone's made out to be a trauma surgeon. Although we complain uh, repeatedly that we don't have the opportunities to do high-level operative cases in trauma, uh, the occasional incredibly challenging case, I think, serves as uh, gratification. But if you don't like that, if you don't like stress, you don't like being up at night, and you can't tolerate uh, sleep deprivation, you shouldn't be doing that. And similarly, I uh, would counsel the same in terms of academic uh, surgery. Uh, there are people that are born that simply are curious. They want to figure out why things work. And if you're one of those individuals, I can assure you, you'll find it very gratifying being an academic surgeon. On the other hand, uh, if you aren't inclined uh, to mechanistic approaches to life, uh, don't force yourself into it if it's not something you enjoy. Well, Dr. Moore, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, and I think people will find this is uh, very interesting. So thank you. Thank you all very much. Good luck. So, Ali, I really enjoyed that talk with Dr. Moore, and I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. I did not know that he was so athletically inclined during his career. And as someone who loves to run, bike, and swim myself and worries about having to give that up to be a successful academic surgeon, it's really happy to hear that you don't have to choose. And, and that was really coming from a time period where you don't have the work-life balance focus that you do now. So I think this just further illustrates what we've been hinting at multiple times in multiple episodes that Surgeries change, and you don't really have to choose between life outside of the operating room or academic surgery or any of those anymore. You can build them all together, and they probably make you a better surgeon overall. And if there's something that's important to you, you have to fight for it to make it part of your life. True. All right. Next up, we have one of our other excellent mentors, Dr. Parachi, who is a dynamic, vibrant figure at Denver Health, certainly one of the residents' favorites, both for his personality, his breadth of knowledge, his teaching, just an all-around great guy who has found himself really since fellowship at Denver Health and made it a great place for us as residents. Let's listen in to hear what Dr. Parachi says about how it is being an attending at Denver Health and what he loves about working there. All 
right, so welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie, and I am here with our esteemed Dr. Parachi, one of the trauma and critical care surgeons at Denver Health, who we spend a good amount of time with through our intern year all the way up to our fifth year of practice here. Uh, Dr. Parachi went to undergraduate as well as medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. He's one of the many transplants from the Northeast in Denver, and he continued during his residency to get your MPH, is that correct? That's right. Um, and that was at Columbia. And then after all of your time that you spent in New York, where you trained at Cornell at New York Presbyterian, you came here to Denver and you did your trauma and critical care fellowship. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Parachi. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Allie. And just to clarify, I did something kind of unusual during my residency. I actually completed a ACGME accredited residency within a residency. Was that the preventative medicine residency yeah. so, that you did? So it's, it's called preventive medicine and there are, gosh, I don't know. I want to say there's like 10 to 20 programs in the whole country. And the residency is very um, loose in terms of like who goes into it and what you want to get out of it. But you basically get a resident salary for two years huh. and you get an MPH as part of the residency and you have to do core requirements, like um, spend a month in occupational health and things like that, which are not super relevant to surgery. But the other 85% of it is just focusing on outcomes research and epidemiology. So I kind of did surgery outcomes research during those two years with my surgery mentors, and almost anything can be have a public health spin put on it. Well, it seems um, very relevant in terms of trauma and critical care. Right. No, it, it definitely was. So the two th things I got out of it is I... I got a better understanding of healthcare policy in the U.S. I took a bunch of courses and um, a good kind of firm foundation in biostats and epi. Like, I'm not sure I could do advanced, like, regressions and things, but when it's 11 p.m. and an abstract's due at midnight, I can do simple statistics on my own. Very nice. Uh, well, one of the questions, Dr. Parachi, that we ask everybody who comes on the program one of the questions that we ask everybody who comes on Rocky Mountain Surgery, Dr. Parachi, is how did you find yourself in surgery? And then my follow-up to that question will be, how did you find yourself um, as a trauma surgeon in a level one trauma center and safety net hospital? Because I think that that's something pretty specific. I grew up as the son of uh, immigrant Italian parents. And my parents grew up in a small mountain village in Italy. And everyone in the family works with their hands. So they're either stonemasons or... Uh, carpenters or farmers. Um, so I had this very strong uh, kind of culture from my family to be doing something like with my hands and with the land. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, I was kind of the first in my family to go off to college and higher education. And I was just always very fascinated with biology. So I saw surgery as a way to combine those two things. And I also like the idea of being able to go in and fix a problem kind of definitively in a short burst instead of having to manage a patient forever. I knew also from a young age that I wanted to work with underserved population. My parents grew up poor. Um, I grew up um, in Chicago and then went to college in West Philadelphia and was just kind of always faced right in front of me with a lot of the racial and socioeconomic disparities in healthcare. So I wanted to be at a mission-driven county hospital uh, but I also wanted to maintain the academic side of things, and I knew I wanted to be at a place where I could teach. So uh, Denver Health combined all of those things. Wow. 
And then what about trauma? How did trauma come about? Did mm. you know you wanted to be a trauma surgeon from the beginning? No, I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon when I was naive and didn't know any better. And so I put my trauma rotation first, uh, just because I knew that I would be really green and I wanted to get some things under my belt so I would really impress the pediatric surgeons when this I ultimately did it. This is as a medical student? This is as a medical student. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I was at Penn and, you know, William Schwab is a big trauma godfather there, just like Gene Moore and all of the other famous trauma surgeons. And I was just hooked from day one. I loved the idea of taking a chaotic situation and bringing order to it. And it also fits very well with uh, the public health kind of underserved mission that was important to me. Now, you know, we spend so much time here as residents, and I think that it's such a huge part of our residency being at Denver Health and taking care of people, not only in the level one trauma setting, where we get a great variety of care, both penetrating and blunt trauma. We do a lot of critical care here, but also um, just in terms of taking care of patients who are, you know, high needs and like you said, underserved in a lot of ways. Um, what do you think the Denver Health experience brings to residents in your opinion? Because I, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about it, but. Yeah, there are several things that make Denver Health unique, and I'll just, I'll focus in on two. So I think even the people who enter surgical residency being certain that they know what they want to do when they're done still don't really know what they want to do because it's just impossible to know exactly what you want to do before you've gone through everything. So Denver Health provides a wide exposure to a wide range of surgeries all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you have to go do a month of colorectal and then you're like, man, I really like colorectal. And then you go do a month of vascular. Like, you know what? I really like vascular. I think there's a little bit of a tendency to want to do what you're doing at that time during your rotation. Mm -hmm. Well, at Denver Health, because we don't have traditional specialists, but we still do all of our own emergency and elective surgery. For example, in addition to trauma, I have a busy elective bariatric and thoracic practice. You could do a 24-hour rotation here as a resident and in the same 24-hour period do a left lower lobectomy, an LAR, an aorta bifem, and you know, an ED thoracotomy. Mm -hmm. And that would be like an epic day, but it has happened, right? Sure. So when you do all of that at once, I think it gives you a, a unique perspective to say like, well, of all of those things, what did I like the most? Or maybe I liked all of them equally and I just want to be a general surgeon. And along the same lines, irrespective of what you ultimately decide that you want to do, like say you want to become a surgical oncologist, there's definitely a really important skill set to learn which is to be able to rapidly shift your gears and manage a colon perforation and then ma manage a you know, SMA thrombus and then manage a esophageal tear. You need to be able to know the four or five important things to ask and whether or not the patient needs a surgery. And you don't even need to, you can plug in whatever you want for the specific specialties of surgery, but um, the ability to just rapidly shift gears will serve you well for the rest of your career, whatever you go into. Very nice. And then are there limitations that you feel about working in a safety net hospital, basically? Yes, there definitely are. The first one, as you might imagine, is that we're always broke. So um, the re you're in a very resource limited situation and that's good and that's bad. I mean, there are days where I get so frustrated because, you know, I've done 2000 lap coles and I show up to do my lap cole and all the equipment's wrong because no one really knows how to set up the lap cole because there's a lot of staff turnover here 
and we don't have like I do a lot of rib plating for example we don't have all four rib plating sets I need to pick one and just go with that one so that is frustrating on one on the one hand on the other hand it forces you to be resourceful so a lot of the things that we've come up with we've literally designed like new tools and new ways of doing operations because we don't have access to the good stuff well I know that you're not only into developing new tools from a surgical perspective, but you're also into developing different things in terms of our education as residents. And one of the things that you have certainly brought to the residents is this bullets and beer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So uh, one of the things that we are addressing right now is uh, an issue with the EM residents and the surgery residents interacting in a collaborative way during our trauma alerts and activations. And this is by no means a problem that's unique to Denver Health. It happens all over the country. But what we're about to enact in just a month, in January 2018, is a new paradigm in which the surgery and EM residents rotate their roles during activations. And we've identified four stations, uh, the head of the bed, the foot of the bed, and the left and the right of the patient. So those will all be rotating roles. And kind of to supplement that and maximize the chance that it works, I conceptualized this Bullets and Beer, which is a low-key extracurricular activity where the EM residents and the surgery residents get together at my house and have pizza and drink beer and play a game, which is a spin on the board game Taboo, where you basically have a trauma word like, say, uh, Reboa. And there are four words that you can't say, and you have to get your teammate to say Reboa without using those words. And we'll do a round or two, and then we'll do some education about some of the words. And we deliberately structure the team so that they're mixtures of EM and surgery residents, so it's not pitting one against the other. And it goes from 7 to 9 o'clock. I just remember back from my residency that, first of all, free food was always a bonus. Agreed. Um, But little things where you kind of felt like the attendings remembered what it was like to be a resident and kind of cared about you were important. And that's kind of the flavor that I want to give with Bullets and Beer. It's also nice knowing everybody's first name, like the people who are running the trauma with you that yeah. you've sat with, you know, with, I think the one time that I played at your house, I had like the headbands format where yes. it was on my head. Right. And I think that the more collaboration that we do with them, I would completely agree that the more you're likely to work together really well in the trauma setting. Like, for example, we work with the EM2s in the burn unit, and the woman who I spent my rotation with, she and I were there together all the time late at night. And Mm. so, you know, that's that being in the trenches, the same thing that you have with your fellow surgery residents that make you respect each other. And when they call you for a consult, you actually really open your ears, maybe your mind and your heart. So, Dr. Parachi, shifting gears a little bit away from that, Denver Health is known nationally as a large trauma center. It previously had a rotation, or excuse me, a, a reputation of being the gun and knife club. So, a lot of penetrating trauma here, gang violence, different things like that. What do you think that the trauma surgeon's role is in terms of advocacy for gun research or against gun violence? Do you see either a voluntary role for surgeons in that, trauma surgeons specifically, a mandatory role? What do you think about that? Well, it's obviously an extremely politically charged issue. And when the AAST, which is probably the largest national trauma organization, surveyed its membership, all of whom are trauma surgeons, and asked their thoughts on gun control, 
basically it was split right down the middle that half of them said we need to be more rigid with our gun control and the other half said we're too rigid already. Mm -hmm. So we can't even agree amongst ourselves. Um, But I do think that trauma surgeons specifically have a responsibility to advocate to decrease gun violence. And I think that almost everyone can agree on that, that gun violence is bad. Then when you take it to the next step, which is, is there a gun violence problem because we have not enough guns or too many guns? That's when the lines Mm -hmm. start to get kind of blurred. But there are a lot of opportunities here to get involved. Denver Health is unique because it is one of the only hospitals that has its own Department of Public Health kind of embedded within it. So the the Denver Department of Public Health lives here on the campus. And for example, we have a violence prevention committee uh, which is run by PhDs in public health with a few ER docs on it and the trauma medical director and another trauma surgeon. So usually you're one of the American College of Surgeons requirements in the Orange Book to be a level one trauma center is that you need to do injury prevention and you need to partner with a public health program. I would say 99% of level one trauma centers do that kind of remotely. So they don't physically have a public health department on their campus. They, you know, send someone out or bring someone in. So we're unique because if that's something that you're interested in, it's really, really easy to get involved. Nice. For trainees who are considering a career in trauma, um, such as Jason, our other co-host, or just in academic medicine in general, what advice do you have for them? So, I mean, I would give them the same advice that I would give to a young student who's interested in going into surgery in general, and that is to do as much time as you can shadowing and talking to people at all stages of the game, interns, residents, fellows, junior attendings, senior attendings, nurse practitioners, um, physicians, assistants, to really get a flavor for what you're getting yourself into. This has been a tremendously rewarding career for me. I would absolutely do it again. But there's not a whole lot that can truly prepare you for it. I feel like I was probably underprepared. And if I could like look back at myself 10 years ago, I would say, you know, take a few more calls in the SICU, go over to your attending's house for dinner, go out to drinks with, you know, your group of residents to just kind of get a sense of what exactly is going on and, and come up with like three to five standard questions that you ask every single person who you interact with. Like one of the questions mine would one of my questions would be something like, what do you do for fun? And it seems like a very simple, straightforward question. But if you go to a program and everyone answers that question, like, I don't have time to have fun, that's a red flag. Whereas if you come here and, you know, Jason says, I go rock climbing and Hunter says, I go ski and steamboat, that's very telling. What do you do for fun, Dr. Perak? Well, it's funny you should ask. This last weekend, I was seeing Star Wars three times for fun. Um, (laughs) But uh, weekends when new Star Wars movies aren't coming out, I uh, do martial arts with my kids. We're all black belts in Taekwondo. I coach uh, their soccer teams, and I go to my son's baseball games. Pretty impressive schedule that you have. Yes. Well, there's never a dull moment. As a last question for you, can you take us through a day in your life from waking up to going home in terms of cases, being sure. in sick you? Yeah. So I get up at 5 every morning. I go to 24-hour fitness and swim a mile, and then I come home and you know get ready for work and see the kids off to school. Um, I get to work usually uh, about seven o'clock. The OR starts at 7.30. Three of the five work uh, weekdays, I have elective cases, but today I'm on call, so I don't have any elective cases. Uh, So far today, 
I've done a lap coli and a laparoscopic diverting loop ileostomy. I'm about to go see a necrotizing soft tissue infection consult. I have had a couple meetings about bariatrics, and now I'm doing this with you, and then we'll see what comes in later tonight. When I'm not on call, I'm usually home by, you know, between four and five o'clock. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Parachi. Anything else that you want our listeners to know or that I've forgotten to ask you? I don't think so. I think it's great that you guys are doing this. It's a great resource. All right. Thanks so much. And we thank Dr. Parachi for that interview. You know, I think that one of the themes that brings all of the attendings that work at Denver Health together are their passion for trauma and their passion for treating the community and also their major passion for teaching. That will also be evident in the interview that's coming up with Dr. Platnick, who's also had kind of an interesting segue into being an attending at Denver Health that we'll hear about too. So let's listen. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have Dr. Platnick with us, who is the trauma medical director here at Denver Health. And we have some great questions for you today, Dr. Platnick. We're very excited to have you on the show. Great. I'm happy to be here, and I hope that I can shed a little light on our experience here at Denver Health. Just before we get started, I'd like to give you a little bit of an introduction. So are you an Oregon native? I'm not. Something I don't know. I'm not. I was born and bred in the heartland of the United States of America. Which would be? New York City. Excellent. Yes. So you're a native New Yorker. I'm a native New Yorker. I went to school in Oregon. Found yourself in Oregon for undergrad and medical school. Yep. And then you did your surgery residency in Bakersfield, California. And then a surgical critical care fellowship in Minnesota. Yep. And then you went into private practice for 20 years. Yes. And you worked at also a level one trauma center. Level one? Uh, before here, level two. Level two trauma center mm-hmm. in a private practice capacity and mm-hmm. just within the past 18 months or so mm-hmm. have come here yes. to Denver Health. Such an interesting shift. Can you tell us a little bit about, number one, what made you want to become a surgeon? Number two, what drove you into the trauma, critical care, general surgery field? And then I'll ask you some more questions about how you found yourself here. Sure. So... You know, I had always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. Do you have family that's in medicine? Mom is a history teacher turned art dealer and dad was a writer. And I had wanted to be a doctor. And after my freshman year of college, it was painfully apparent that would never happen. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Well, so for those of you who don't know, a 1.7 GPA will not get you into medical school. (laughs) So I uh, ultimately did get into medical school. And... I wanted, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something broad-based is what I had thought. And to me at the time, that meant family practice or maybe emergency medicine. And I was doing my, I was put on my surgery rotation. I got nine weeks on the green team at the VA, which meant 4 a.m. to 9 p.m., like seven days a week. And I was one of those annoying medical students who always kept saying, let me do something. Let me do that. Oh, can I do that? We like those medical students. Uh, yeah. That, uh, at the time, I think I was, I was, I felt like I was annoyance, but it didn't bother me any. And so <laughs> I, uh, one day I showed up for a hernia 
with the, the third year we're supposed to take the intern through the hernia. The intern didn't show up and she looked at me and she said, knife to Dr. Platnik. And they gave me the scalpel. I made the incision. I watched the skin fall back. I saw the subcutaneous fat and I thought to myself, I have got to do this. Nice. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Wow. And I, it was right then. I was one, I mean, not, not a lot of people have those aha moments. I had that. I don't know. I think it might be more common in surgery than it is in some of the other fields. You're just enamored with it because I think you have to be. Yeah. To oh, want to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I, like I said, I spent nine weeks on the green team from dark to dark and, and I liked it. And I thought to myself, I'm damaged. <laughs> <laughs> How can a person really like that? But I did. So, um, that was me becoming a surgeon. And then I had, I actually quickly decided I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. The name Donald Trunkey may or may not mean something to the younger generation, but he was the godfather of rock and roll for for, for <laughs> trauma surgery. And um, he was our chairman. And I, just, I, like, I thought he was the smartest guy in the world, and I wanted to be one of those. Mm -hmm. So I went on the interview trail, and I decided I wanted to go to a Blood and Guts County Hospital. And I interviewed at... Oakland and Fresno and Bakersfield. And then I went to charity in New Orleans and some of the others. And uh, when I was in Bakersfield, there was a shootout on Main Street where the sheriff shot a bank robber dead. And it was like Old West. I thought, no, this is good. So I'm <laughs> this going. This is exactly what I'm looking yes. for. So that's where I went. And it was great. My residency was not necessarily the best part of my career, but one of the best parts so far. When you say you wanted to go to a Blood and Guts County Hospital, why? Like, what What were you looking for? Because I think that we have a little bit of that reputation here at Denver Health where you get such a broad trauma experience. But why? What was, because why was that I, important to you? Because I knew I would be operating. I knew I would operate and I knew I would do a, I would do some of everything. I knew that I would do chest. I would do vascular. At this particular program, I did orthopedics and I did neurosurgery. When I finished, I when I finished in my first job, I would do tonsillectomies. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I it was a very broad-based general surgery practice and we did everything i mean we would you know and it's a little like here i mean like for instance i mean i had i had a case you know i have cases here where i have to put the guy who's stabbed in the abdomen on hold so i can take the guy who's stabbed in the chest to the operating room sure and um and that's what it was like there so that was what i wanted and uh and i when i got done i went to uh rapid city south dakota which is one of the second largest town in South Dakota, which is not still not a large town, but we had a huge catchment area and I got to do, it was sort of the same kind of thing. I did vascular and thoracic and I, I was the trauma director there. And then I got recruited to the front range and I went to Good Sam and I started their trauma program. And when I, and this is how I started here. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, I know. I, um, so we, when I came to Good Sam, it was a brand new hospital. And they wanted to start a trauma program. So I said, great. And I, so we started a trauma program. And like any good new business, we had no business. <laughs> so I came to G, to Dr. Moore and I said, uh, hey, uh, you need anybody to take call? Well, at that point, they had lost a couple surgeries. They were down to like three. And he said, when can you start? And I just started right away. And I've been taking call. That was, you know, 2006. So that was, you know. 12 years ago, basically. So you've been an intermittent but permanent face here yeah. for the past 12 years. Yeah, I've taken call here for for years. And then, um, you know, I did what I needed to do and what I'd wanted to do at Good Sam. And there was a lot of changes here. And it really, 
really sort of great new leadership and I knew a lot of the folks here, the sure. surgeons here, but there were some new surgeons and I was really, it was a very exciting sort of growth time in this department and I thought, I'm going to come here full time. Now, I would assume that your practice here at Denver Health, which is not only a level one trauma center, but also a kind of safety net county hospital, is slightly different than it was at Good Sam, which is a private hospital. Maybe the trauma is similar, but I'm assuming your elective practice is different. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so here's so my background has always been sort of a safety net guy. Like when I lived in South Dakota, I really thrived on taking care of the Native Americans off the reservation. I mean, it's part of, I mean, that's part of what I like to do. And it's part of what I liked working here. Mm-hmm. You know, I took call here when I was at Good Sam because A, I, I, I thrived on the trauma. Sure. And B, it was my opportunity to, to take care of that sort of uh, at-risk population. And living in the suburbs, you know, there was less of that, although there's still enough. Sure. But my, to be honest, my elective practice here, you know, what I get out of the clinics is it mirrors it. It's the just a different population. I mean, I still do, you know, I do hernias, I do gallbladders, I do cancers, I do the same the same sort of things. It's just that being a safety net hospital, the group we're taking care of is a group that will not get taken care of if we're not here. And what do you think the benefit to residents training in that type of environment is? So I have I, I may I, I may have a slightly uh, more ethereal take on that than some. So the benefit is, of course, there's a lot of stuff to do. So there's a ton of surgery to do. And there is less, and they and the residents get to do it. And there's less um, ass kissing that needs to be done in the process to referring doctors and so on. Mm-hmm. The ethereal component is, um, I think it's important for the residents to learn to take care of people who they are not the same as. Hmm. And I do, I mean, I really think that, you know, uh, you know, in our Wednesday morning conference, you know, we talk about, you know, we talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about burnout. We talk about trying to relate to the patients. We talk about how do you bridge the gap, not just necessarily by language, but, you know, when you, maybe you don't know anything about these kind of people, maybe you don't even like them, but how are you going to learn to, to take good care of them? Mm-hmm. So I think that there's, I mean, I really think there is a social growth component for residents hmm. in addition to being at a blood and guts County hospital, you know, where you just get to do a ton of surgery. Now, let me ask you, you said something about the Wednesday morning conference. I know that's something that you started. What, what is breakfast with Barry? So breakfast with Barry is now called muffins and meditation. I had originally called it wellness and professional development. <laughs> um, and what it is, it's an opportunity to, um, it grew out of the fact that, you know, when I take call here for years, I always bought the residents dinner and we'd hang out and talk. And we often talked about the same topics over and over again. A, what is it like in the real world, the quote real world? Mm-hmm. And B, sort of the less talked about stuff about surgery, like how do you manage having kids and a life and how do you, you know, buy a house or, and how do you not go crazy in the process? Mm-hmm. And so... I started thinking about that and I thought, well, you know, part of what I do, so this is the, the hippie part of me, you know, I had a long time meditation practice. And so I thought a little bit of meditation and then an opportunity to have really in, like intentional dialogue around topics not typically talked about mm-hmm. for surgical residency. So we sit down and we get meet in the morning, we meditate for 10 minutes, 
and then either talk about a topic like resilience related topics or how to find a job how what is it what is a good contract look like mm-hmm. um or maybe um you know how do i you know how do i muster that when people how do i muster the the uh memory of why i went into this when i've been awake for forever and ever and i really feel like i never want to do this again you know how do you get in touch with that kind of thing so it's a little bit about your longevity as a surgeon it's a little bit about life in the real world and and then of course there's bagels and coffee well we appreciate not only the food but the conversation as well i think it's been very helpful i specifically remember ones that i went to where we talked about like specific positions that physicians can hold within a hospital. Like what does it actually mean to be a medical director of something or different things? And I thought that that was great. One of the other questions I have for you, I know that you specifically are interested in palliative care, goals of care, patient-centered care. How is how did that come about? How did that become an interest of yours? Was it something that you saw was lacking from the surgical critical care field? What was it that motivated you to go there? Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually that it was something that I saw was present in other fields. And then I realized it was lacking in our field. And it, when I was at, at Good Samaritan, I started working with the palliative care team in the ICU, getting them involved in our multidisciplinary rounds. And I realized that they brought to the table a whole set of skills, both clinical and communication skills and social skills that surgeons not only do we not have well-developed, but are actually maybe in a cliche way discouraged at times throughout our training. And so I thought this is something that will benefit our patients. And honestly, it benefits us. I mean, I, I mean, I, there is really a symbiosis between our own personal wellness and how we treat our patients. So, and I guess getting old. So like, as I get older, palliative care seems more important. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, outlining your goals. I think that that's something that I definitely learned from you and learning to have those conversations with Mm -hmm. families that it's difficult. You know, our residency is so critical care focused in the second year and you will have patients who will die. And being able to have conversations around death or around comfort, around goals was something that was hugely important in my second year in terms of being able to take good care of patients. And I definitely learn some of those skills working with you and having those conversations. We can't, you know, you can't take care of a patient unless you know what they want done. Right. And you can't know what they want done unless you've had that conversation with them, which is not always easy, or you've identified somebody who you can have that conversation with about the patient when the patient can't do it for themselves. One of the other questions that I have for you, because I think that Denver Health is such a dynamic place in terms of what you do in a day, it kind of like embodies general surgery in its totality, where you've got your ICU patients and you're attending to traumas and you're doing elective hernias and you're, you know, bouncing around the hospital seeing consults. What is a day like in your life from waking up to going to bed? Do you really want to know? I really want to know. So in terms of... So I wake up in the morning. Yes. And I have coffee. And then I play music for half an hour. Then I meditate for half an hour. What time I, do you wake up? 4.30. Wow. And, um, and then I come to work. And depending on what, I, what the day is, I mean, I may go right to the operating room and do cases and then bounce between there and the ICU and round all my patients in the ICU. 
I may round with the residents on all the patients on the floor. And I'll try to get to the palliative care interdisciplinary team meetings at noon. Um, what cases might you be doing? Well, you know, so yesterday I was on call. And uh, I started by doing a radical gastrectomy for gastric cancer. I then did a lymph node biopsy. I then did debridement for necrotizing fasciitis. And that was my call day. I didn't have much in the way of trauma that day. Some days, uh, from a surgical standpoint, I'll start with my big case, which might be a colectomy. Then I'll do a gallbladder and a hernia or maybe a hemorrhoid. And then, you know, I'll, again, I'll run over to the ICU and see what's going on there and try to find residents to go see the patients on the floor. And in the middle, get into clinic. <laughs> try to get clinic patients seen. And then in terms of time spent with your family, how has that been something that you have managed or not managed throughout your career? So my career has been shaped around, for me, it's been a lot shaped around my family, which is why I was not full-time at Denver Health early in my career. Hmm. Uh, I put in, I you know, part of it is I have a, a commute here, so that kills some time. But um, earlier in my career, when my daughter, my daughter's in college now, when my daughter was at home, I made sure I lived close to the hospital so I could come and go during the middle of the day. You know, if she had a softball game, I'd split in the middle of the day and go to her game and come back and do cases at night. So, I mean, I, you know, some people really, they say, well, you need to keep your work and your home life very separate. It actually worked the exact opposite for me. I completely integrated the two for a long time and I just moved back and forth. Now that I'm here at Denver Health, um, my time it's like I come to work and I stay and then I go home. And I put in, you know, on my non-call days, somewhere between 8 and 12 hours during the day. And, uh, but, it, you know, it seems to work out. I mean, I still, I play music. I play music with friends. I have, I have a pottery studio in my garage. I make pottery. Um, my wife, I think, likes me still. <laughs> my dog loves me. <laughs> so. Very good. Well, Dr. Platnick, thank you for being with us here on Rocky Mountain Surgery. Do you think that there's anything else that people considering a career in surgery, considering a residency in Denver, should know about what it's like to be a surgeon here at Denver Health? Or would, what they could gain from being a surgeon at Denver Health? Today? So I will say the first thing I will say to anybody who's considering a career in surgery is if that's what you really want to do, you shouldn't let anything get in your way. It's... Because you can shape the lifestyle any way you want. You can make the career look the way you want. And you will never, ever have a better career. I'm sorry, but it's the best thing that you can do. I honestly believe that. I think coming here to, to first of all, coming to Colorado, how great is that? You know, I mean, it's it's gorgeous and wonderful and Denver's a great town. And coming to to Denver Health specifically, this is one of very few places left in the country where you can get this kind of experience where you can get the kind of experience where when you are safe just with me and we're on call that if somebody is, uh, you know, gets in a car wreck and they get uh, torn bronchus, you and I are going to take them to the operating room and open their chest and fix that bronchus. And then the next person who comes in and gets stabbed in the heart, you and I are going to fix the heart. And the next person dislocates their knee as a popliteal artery injury. You and I are going to fix that injury. We're going to do the lap coles and the colons and we're going to do all of the surgery. I mean, it's, you will do all of it. So, I mean, that's the, 
that to me is the big thing about Denver Health. Well, I would completely agree. Thank you very much. Well, Jason, any last thoughts for this episode on Denver Health? I know that Denver Health is your Zen place. <laughs> it's not without its uh, own, you know, what I should say is every hospital we work at has its advantages and disadvantages or things we like and don't like. And we've mentioned that through our prior episodes. Certainly I'm inclined to work or inclined to enjoy working at Denver Health because of my focus. Uh, but we all benefit, I think, from working in there. And I'm sure most of our, our fellow residents would agree with that statement. Agreed. And I think that the faculty there is just so amazing, as you guys have heard um, from these attendings during this episode. During our next episode, we'll switch gears a little bit and go back to our model of kind of talking about a PGY year in an episode. And we will be talking about what it is like to be a chief. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Again, if you have any questions, send us an email, rmspodcast at outlook.com, or you can contact us on Twitter. Thanks, you guys.